Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. We're here in Galatians 3. We are going to read verses 15 to 18. And then, as usual, we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look <clears throat> at verse 15. Paul's picking up from where he left off in verse 14. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the opportunity to again this Sunday come and gather around your word. This is our life. It, it, it's our hope. It's the, only, it's the only place we can come where we can see your spirit take your word and change us and make us more like Christ. And so I pray that that will be the case this morning, that we will take your word here, that you will apply it to us to help us understand, to open the, the eyes of our minds and hearts to read your word properly so that we can know what your plan is, not just, not just here in Galatians and not just even in our own individual lives, but what your plan is for this world. Help us to, to get a bigger picture this morning of what it is you are doing in this world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're all familiar, uh, well familiar, no doubt, with the old uh, adage or idiom of beating a dead horse. It's a, a, a phrase that comes to us from a bygone era, that of of before a time when there were automobiles, when outside of uh, Pat and Charlie, as they say in the South, it's your feet. Your, your main way of, of transportation from here to there would be somehow connected to a horse. And, and if you've ever been around horses, you know a little bit of how they are. If they've been well-broken and well-trained, they can be very compliant creatures, very manageable, easy to use in terms of getting around. But if you've got one that's not very well-trained or well-broken, uh, then it can be uh, pretty obstinate. So I can only imagine that when that was the common way of transportation, you would occasionally, if not more than that, see people beating their horses to some degree or another in order to try to get them to do what they wanted them to do. But as common sense should no doubt make clear, that approach doesn't work on dead horses, right? We, we get that if the Lone Ranger goes out to the stable and there lies Silver dead on the, on the floor, it's kind of hard uh, to make him do whatever you want him to do, no matter how much you beat him or or try to get him to go, it just ain't going to happen. It's just unnecessary, right? You can beat him all day long. It's not going to accomplish anything new. And of course, that is the point of the idiom. When we're beating a dead horse, we are coming back to something. It's just either a, a conversation, an activity. It can be a mul multitude of things, but we're coming back to something that isn't accomplishing anything new or different, right? You're just staying at the same spot. You're not getting anywhere at all. And there's a part of me, I'll be honest, that feels very much that way about what Paul is doing here in Galatians, that he is 
really without a whole lot of stretching of the phrase, beating a dead horse. Um, and the dead horse in this context, as you no doubt know, is the fact that faith is superior to the Old Testament law. And that going back to the Old Testament law to try to find your acceptance before God or really anything else at this point would be completely useless and, and meaningless now that Christ has come. And, and he's been making this point biblically and historically and logically and theologically. He has made it as thoroughly, I think, as he could possibly make it, particularly in these past 14 verses, which is what we just finished last week as we finished that opening section we saw that here he was coming across almost like <clears throat> a Jewish lawyer who is taking all of these various Old Testament passages and he's weaving them together into a unified argument, oftentimes focused on the meaning or the significance of one particular word in order to further his argument. And the problem has been for us, at least I think, in working through that kind of material, is that we have to do it somewhat slowly because we just don't understand or really... Um, have a good grasp of the Old, Old Testament scriptures the way that Paul's original readers did. And so I feel like each week I'm having to approach each of these arguments very slowly, give us a lot of backstory, try to help us understand it from a Jewish perspective or a Jewish point of view, because that is how Paul is addressing it. And it just feels like really slow, plotting kind of work. And I think I'd be okay with that if every week when we came time to apply whatever it was we were studying, I didn't feel like my application had to be the law, or excuse me, the faith is better than the law. I mean, that's been the application almost every single Sunday, the point of everything we've looked at for weeks now, that faith is better than the law. And if I think, I think if I had a dollar for every time I've said that over the past few weeks, we could probably pay off the mortgage by now in the building, right? It's just been over and over and over again. And so from our perspective, we're like, I get it, Paul. I get it, right? Faith is better than the law. You've convinced us. We don't have to keep seeing it. We don't have to keep arguing it. Let's move on now to something else. But remember, we feel that way because of our non-Jewish context. None of us have grown up uh, under the law, believing that this was the way that God wanted us to relate to him was through keeping the Mosaic law. None of us uh, began our study of Galatians with thousands of years of Jewish culture pushing us to view and understand the law in a particular kind of way. In other words, we just don't get what these people are going through. But for these folks, this is really hard. It goes against everything that they have thought and seen and heard for their entire lives. And Paul is not going to take any chances with this situation. And so he's just going to keep beating that dead horse unapologetically, right? He doesn't care. He makes no apologies, no excuses. He is relentless in his attack. And while that may have been helpful for his original readers, the danger for us is, is that we begin to tune out due to the pure monotony of the argument. Every week, it's the same thing. Each verse, the same thing over and over and over again. But what Paul is really giving us, if we can get past a little bit of that monotony of the argument, what he's really giving us is a master class in understanding the Old Testament correctly. If you think about how he's been building this argument, what he's been doing along the way, I think that's, that's it. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment a scenario where at the end of my sermon, who comes busting through the back door but the Apostle Paul himself? And he's like, hey, everybody, before you leave, I need to make a quick announcement. 
Uh, tonight, 7 p.m. in this room, I will be giving a two-hour lecture on rightly reading and understanding the Old Testament. Who in here, even if you're not a, a Christian, even if you're not a believer, who in here would not want to, to move everything in your schedule to take advantage of that opportunity to hear the Apostle Paul, one of the authors of the New Testament, stand up and explain to you how you should be reading your, the, the Old Testament? I mean, particularly if you're a believer, you should definitely want to be here for that. It would be a humongously amazing experience. I mean, what an opportunity. Well, can I point out that that is exactly... What Paul is doing here in these verses, in the midst of this relentless argumentation that faith is better than the law, he is putting on a show in terms of how we should be reading the Old Testament. And if we miss that as we work through this text, and we have missed a major component of what it is he's trying to do here in the Scriptures, particularly from, from our perspective, because we have to get what Paul is doing here with his logic in order to properly read not just Galatians, but to really read the entirety of what God is doing in his plan for this world. And so today, we're going to get a doozy of an illustration of that. And so we're just going to walk through, I was trying to think of the best way to manage this, and I think this will be the best way. We're just going to walk through verses 15 to 18, just Pretty quickly, in a row, it will go uh, relatively fast. It's easy to understand. Make sure we, we see what he's saying. But then we're going to come back to what he says here and apply it to the way we read and understand the Old Testament scriptures in particular. So let's get started here. Beginning in verse 15, you can see that Paul is rearing back, getting ready to take his next swing at the dead horse. When he says, to give a human example, brothers, what he's really doing is, is saying, let's do this again. I know I've, I've already made this argument for the past 14 verses, really for the entirety of this letter to this point, but I want to give you another example, another perspective, another angle on this argument. Like I said, he's relentless. And as you can see here this time, his angle is to draw a comparison between the argument that he has been building since verse 1 and this thing that he refers to as a covenant. Now, I have said this multiple times in the past, and I will shamelessly repeat it today. It is important for us as believers reading the scriptures that we understand thoroughly what a covenant is, because we don't use that word much. We don't think in that terminology much in our world today. But here's a definition for what a covenant is. A covenant is a relational contract, a relational contract. And both of those words are very important. It is not just a contract. We are all, no doubt, very familiar with what contracts are. You probably are currently involved in a number of them. If you own a house or a car, you have a contract, no, very likely with a bank, unless you have been able to get out of that uh, in time. If you have a cell phone plan, you've got a contract with your cell phone provider. Some of you have employment contracts, contracts with the Navy, et cetera, et cetera. We get what this is. And unless you're just getting started in life, you, you're probably really familiar with that term, but, but it's important to note that, that with those kinds of contracts, there is absolutely no relationship involved. So take, for example, if you own a house, the, the contract you have with the bank. Understand that in its essence, the arrangement there is very, very simple. Each month, you give them money, and each month, they let you continue living in your house. That's it, right? That's the essence of the contract that you have with your bank in terms of the loan. Uh, there's no relationship in that. 
None at all. It's not like, you know, each day when you get home from work, you call the bank and be like, hey, let me tell you what happened today, you know. And, and each week they're sending someone over to your house to have dinner with you so they can tell you what's going on at the bank. It's just, it's just not that kind of relationship. Um, and, you know, Jamie and I, I was thinking about this even this morning a little bit. We, we, we just refinanced our house this past summer. We had been with SunTrust for years, but then Langley uh, Federal Credit Union came along, offered an amazing uh, refinance rate, and so we refinanced our house. And guess what? We didn't cry. And they didn't cry. No one cried. Because you know why? There's no relationship there. It was purely a contract. It was purely a, we give you money, you let us live in our house kind of deal. Nothing happened. No, no relationship at all. And a covenant is not just a contract, neither is it just a relationship. And again, we all get what relationships are because all of us have relationships of varying types and degrees with lots and lots of different people. Um, many of you, for example, I would consider to be my friend. We have a relationship that we've built over time. Some of you more, some of you less. But, but understand that in that relationship, I, that doesn't mean I'm going to pay your bills. And, and nor am I, you know, promise, oh, he's leaving because of that. Nor am I promising, <laughs> sorry, Justin. <laughs> nor am I promising to call you X number of times a week. Or really, am I making any other kinds of promises to you? I could do those kinds of things, but I'm certainly not obligated to. It's just a relationship that, that has no promises built into it. So, so it's not, a covenant is not just a relationship. What a covenant is, is a combination of those two things. It is a relational contract. And the only example of a covenant in our day and age is marriage. Marriage is a relational contract. So clearly you get the idea that you have a relationship with your spouse but, but in addition to that relationship, what makes it different than any other relationship you have is that you've made promises. You have obligated yourself to do or not do certain things in relation to that other person for the rest of your life, no matter what. I'm not obligated to anyone in this building to, to, in that kind of way except my wife. I'm not even obligated to my kids in that kind of way. I'll feed them and clothe them and give them a place to live until they are 318, but then they're on their own. Like They can't keep coming back looking for food and shelter the rest of their life. they got to go. I have one person, one person that I have that kind of relationship with, and that's my wife. Everybody else, you know, I can walk away from you today and have no repercussions at all, but not her. Does that make sense? This is what a covenant is. And in Paul's day, and really throughout all of Scripture, covenants were far more common and were not just limited to marriage. And so, because it was so commonly understood, he uses this concept as an example. He says, even with a man-made covenant, one between two neighbors or two business partners or anybody, it doesn't really matter, even with just a regular old man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, once the terms of the covenant have been agreed to, that thing is done. There is no changing it in any way, no bringing, cutting it short in any way until it has run its course. And so if the covenant was to treat each other in a certain way for a year, you know, three months in, I can't come back and be like, hey, you know, I've been thinking about that, and yeah, I think we need to make a tweak here. Or six months later, oh, we forgot something, I need to add this to it. No, you can't do that. Nor can you cut it short at nine months or 10 months or 11 months or 364 days even. If the covenant is for a year of this 
relationship and these obligations, you have to fulfill it. It was, being, it was viewed as being unchangeable until it had run its agreed-upon course, even if that meant for life. And so all you need to understand here is that being in a covenant, it's a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal, and it's, once you're in it, you can't change it. So, so understanding that principle, let's think now specifically about the covenant that God made with Abraham. He says, now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So, so he mentions promises here, right? Well, what promises is he talking about? Well, duh, he's talking about the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's what he says. And he says, this is the covenant that God made with Abraham, particularly the the one back in Genesis 15. And I walked us through that just a a few months ago. Do you remember this? Where in Genesis 15, Abram's doubting. And so he tells God his doubts and God responds with promises. Abram believes. God counts it as righteousness. In other words, he's justified through this just based on faith alone. And then... And this is what I just walked us through quickly. At the end of Genesis 15, you've got this weird moment that occurs where God tells Abram to take some animals and cut them in half. So either this way or this way, I don't know. So he cuts them in half, and he's got to like set them apart, make a, a pathway or walkway down the middle. And that's really weird to us, but this was a very common covenant ceremony in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it was meant to signify in a very picturesque and maybe somewhat gory kind of way, that this is what should happen to me if I do not fulfill the requirements of the covenant that I'm entering into today. So if you and I are entering into a covenant, we got our animals, you know, split them up, make our walkway, we go stand in the middle of this, and we, we repeat what the covenant is, I will do this. And you go, I will do that. And therefore, if we break it, this is what should happen to us. On a side note, um, Imagine a wedding being set up like that. I just think like that. I was like, oh, the bride, she looks so pretty next to that half a cow. Uh, anyway, next time you're at a wedding, picture that. That's beside the point. Uh, this is what both parties are supposed to do. But what was the weird thing in Genesis 15? Do you remember? What was the unusual aspect of that particular ceremony that you don't normally see? How many people, so to speak, went down the aisle here? Just one, and it was God. God alone goes down and he says, in effect, if I don't keep the promises that I am making to you, Abram, may I be split in half. I mean, it's nonsense. God can't do this. But it's also a a very picturesque, picturesque way of showing, listen, I will keep my promises. I mean, it's, if it's not certain enough that just based on God's word alone, he, he makes a covenant to Abraham, and, and he alone is responsible for fulfilling it. It is truly an amazing moment, not just in Genesis, but really in the entirety of the Old Testament. So, so remember that covenant, the one that God alone made with Abram and his offspring, and then he, kind of like a lawyer here, goes off on a quick rabbit trail, uh, focused on the, the very nature of the word offspring, pointing out that it was singular, not plural. He wasn't talking about all of Abram's offsprings. His promises are made to one individual offspring. And then he tells us, really, without any explanation or defense, who that specific offspring was. That was Jesus. You got all that? Okay, very quick. All right, back to the argument now. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make 
the promise void. When he says here 430 years afterward, 430 years after what? Well, he's talking about the covenant that God made with Abram there in, in Genesis 15. Okay, that covenant that was based on nothing more than God's promises and Abram's faith. He says, hey, look, just like in a regular old man-made kind of covenant, once this thing has been established, no one can annul it. No one can change it uh, uh, before it's run its course. And so when God gives Israel the law 430 years later, understand Israel, understand Jewish believers in Galatia, that that was never intended to take the place of the covenant that God had made with Abram, because that would just be wrong. Like, just anyone gets that. Any kind of covenant, any, anything you might do with anyone, you would understand that that's just wrong. You can't replace or annul an old covenant with a new one. That's just not how they work, and every Jew in Paul's day would have understood that. And so the promises made to Abram were never affected by the law in any way. The law didn't annul those promises. It didn't replace them. It didn't make them void. For if it had, if the inheritance had come by the law, then it would no longer have come by promise. Let's go the other way. There we go. No longer have come by promise. And with the word inheritance here, he's referring to the fulfilled promises made to Abraham. Upon what uh, a basis was God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham? Was it, was it based on Abram doing something in Genesis 15? Did God say, listen, if you do this, 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 and this, then I will give you these promises. Is that how it worked there? No. God just simply said, I will do this. And so there's nothing on Abraham's part to do except believe and accept. And Paul makes that same point here. Look, if the inheritance had come by the law, then it could no longer come by promise. If you had to keep the law in order to participate in the blessings of Abraham, then the covenant of Genesis 15 has been annulled. It's been done away with. It no longer comes simply because of God's promise, but now because you keep the law. Now you've earned your participation in the promises of God. Now you've earned your part of the blessings. It's not just about believing in the promises anymore. And now here comes the final blow. He's like, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's just what it is. You know, that's the covenant, justification and blessing through faith alone and nothing but the promises of God alone. And I've asked this before, and I will ask it again. The answer is still the same. Did Abraham have to earn that? No. Did he deserve that? No. God just picks him out of all the people on the earth and chooses to show him grace. That's it. And if this is what God chose to do and how he chose to do it, if his covenant with Abram was not based on the law, which didn't even come for 430 more years after this point, uh, but was based solely on himself and on his promises to Abraham, then nothing, believe me, nothing in this world, no law, no other promises, no other actions, no other activities, Nothing else could be brought to bear that would undo the blessings of Abraham and to his offspring through faith alone. Nothing. Nothing at all. Now, let's apply this. 
And I'll make this first one very brief and somewhat out of obligation because I want to be faithful to Paul's point here in the text. Application number one is that faith is better than the law. All right, another dollar on the mortgage there. Um, that's it. That's a dead horse. I won't beat it any more than that. But, but as I also said at the beginning, Paul has just given us a real lesson on how to read the Old Testament. Uh, because he's given us here two lenses for reading the Old Testament in particular correctly. I mean, and which of us would not want to read the Old Testament the way the apostles did? I mean, again, if, if Paul's coming in here giving a class, we're here. We want to understand it. Well, he's doing that. He's giving us two lenses. And the first one of those two lenses is the lens of Abraham. Now, I've had these uh, two thoughts sort of rattling around inside my brain this, uh, this week. Stick with me for a moment because I'll try to make them make sense. But here's the first one. Uh, you do understand, do you not, that Abraham is not Jewish? I know you're like, what? Of course Abraham's Jewish. No. Where's Abraham from? He was from Ur of the Chaldees. He's Chaldean. That's who he is. By, by, by Jewish standards today, okay, and I know they count him as Jewish, so just, I'm, I'm splitting hairs, so stick with me just for a moment. By Jewish standards today, if I were to pick any other just random shepherd living in the vicinity of, of Ur at that time and say, is that person Jewish? I'd be like, oh no, he's a Gentile. That's Abraham. He's just a random shepherd, a nomad of some sort, a Chaldean living in the vicinity of the city of Ur in upper Mesopotamia. He, he's, he's not... Jewish. Now, of course, they count him as being Jewish and as being the father of the Jewish nations, but technically that distinction should really go to Jacob, his grandson. He's the one that God renames Israel. He's the one who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. So, you know, we want to think about what defines someone who is Jewish. Someone who's Jewish is a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, one of the 12 sons, one of the nation of Israel. Abraham wasn't a descendant of that. You get, you get the point again, I'm, I'm splitting hairs a little. I just want you to understand that, that, that Abram is just a guy. When you meet him at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, he's just some random Chaldean shepherd. He's just a human living in the vicinity of Ur. He is not a part of the Jewish people when God chooses him because there is no Jewish people when God chooses him. He's a part of humanity. And the context in which we meet Abram is significant because it comes right after the Tower of Babel incident where God judges all of humanity by, by dividing their languages and splitting them up. And as you read that story, if you, if you didn't know what came next, if you could somehow you know, wipe your brain of everything you know about the scriptures for a moment and just read Genesis for the very first time like you had no idea what was happening, when you got to the Tower of Babel incident, you'd be sitting there wondering, hey, is, is, is God done with humanity? Is he done with, with humanity? Is he done with his plan? And then you see Abram like, oh, cool, thank you. Thankfully, he's not. He picked this guy, this Chaldean guy. He's going to keep working with him. In just the first 11 chapters of Genesis alone, three times God has to judge and punish the entire human race, the fall, the flood, and the tower in Babel. And you would be wondering if God was done. And no, you see, he's not. He's picked this human guy, Abram, a Chaldean. He's not done with humanity. He's not done with humans. He's going to bless all the nations, all the, the people who come out of the Tower of Babel incident through this guy. And so you'd be tempted to think it's really focused on, on humans and all humanity. Okay, got that? Hold that. It's kind of weird. 
Second random thought that's been bouncing around inside my mind this week. Abraham's story in Genesis, and really the story of God's dealing with all of humanity as a whole, it's, a, it's very brief. Very, very brief. Genesis 1 through 11. 11 chapters you see God dealing with all of humanity, right? And then starting in Genesis 12, we get the story of Abraham, and that story goes from chapter 12 to chapter 23. Now, technically, he doesn't die until chapter 25, but, but in 24, we start talking about Isaac, and we really lose focus on Abraham completely as the story moves on. So you've got 11 chapters of all, God dealing with all of humanity, about the same amount God dealing with, with Abraham along, uh, alone, and then what is the rest of the Old Testament about from that point out? Israel, really. It goes about Isaac, and then by uh, Genesis 25, Jacob is born. By the middle of Genesis 30, he's got 11 sons. By Genesis 35, the 12th son finally is born, and now we've got the whole nation ready to go, right? Jacob and the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, from there, you meet Moses in Exodus 2. They leave Egypt, Exodus 12, and by Exodus 19, they're at Mount Sinai. So you, and then the rest of the Old Testament after that, what's it about? Israel not keeping God's law and all the problems that come out of that. You say, what's the point of that? Well, my point is this. Just based on what seems to be emphasized by the pure volume of focus, would you read the rest of the Old Testament after Genesis 23 through the lens of what God did with this Chaldean shepherd named Abraham? Probably not. Because it doesn't seem to be the point of emphasis. It's only very brief, only very at the very beginning. But clearly, Paul wants to read the rest of the Old Testament through what happened to Abraham. The Jews had focused, as I think probably many of us have as well, but they had focused their reading of the Old Testament on Moses and what God had done with the children of Israel through and out of Moses. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You cannot read the story of the Old Testament through the lens of Moses. You have to read the Old Testament story through the lens of Abraham. You have to understand that God is doing something in and for and through humanity, through this, uh, and not just, excuse me, through this one family. Now, is that one family going to be blessed? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The whole rest of the Old Testament is going to tell you about them and, and all that happens. But we have missed the point from the get-go if we've forgotten or missed the fact that there was a bigger plan from the very outset. That the covenant that God made with Abraham is the focus, not the one he made with the people through Moses. That second one didn't trump the first one, and you need the first one in order to rightly understand the second one. So if you want to read the Old Testament like Paul reads the Old Testament, apparently, as you see here in Galatians 3, you have to read it through the lens of Abraham. Secondly, you have to read it through the lens of Christ. And this comment here in verse 16, that the offspring, singular, that God was referring to in his promises to Abraham was, was Jesus. That's who he was talking about. It is so absolutely crazy important that I do not believe that I can sit here this morning or stand here this morning and fully explain to you all that that means. I wish I could, but I am, I am not prepared to say as much as probably needs to be said about that. It is this big. Jesus is the focus 
of the promised blessings of Abraham. Do you understand this? You may not understand its full ramifications of significance, but you've got to take that at least that point right there. And, and I could run in multiple directions with that, no doubt, but, but I'll just point out this one thing because it's safe and because I know it's true. That fact alone now makes better sense out of a couple of things that Paul has said previously here in Galatians. For example, look back at verse 9. He said in his argument there, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In verse 14, he said that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham was coming to the Gentiles. And in both cases there, his point was is that Gentiles can receive the promises made to Abraham by faith. And some people take that in some kind of weird directions, in my humble opinion. But, but here's what I can say for sure. Because Christ is the true recipient and focus of the promised blessings of Abraham, all of those who put their faith in Christ and become one with him become recipients then of those blessings made to Abraham. It's not that I personally, Stacy Potts, am, am receiving the blessings, blessings. It's that Christ is receiving the blessings and that I am in him. Does, do you understand that little distinction there? It's an important one to make. These are important truths that I feel like I'm only beginning to barely get my mind around. But, but if we want to read the Old Testament like Paul did, th this is what we have to do. We have to read it through these two lenses. We need to, to read it through the lens of Abraham and see that God had promised blessings, not just to one family, but to all of humanity through faith. And then we need to read it through the lens of Christ, understanding that he is the one who is the ultimate recipient and focused of those promised blessings to Abraham. But understand now, finally, that this leaves us on a cliffhanger, literally, because I'm going to leave us on a cliffhanger. If the covenant made to Abraham, Genesis 15, is really this important. And if Jesus is the true recipient of all those promised blessings made to Abraham, then why the law? Do you understand the, the logical question that's come up now, like in the argument? And it's been building for some time. It didn't just happen here in, at this point in Galatians. Like we've been seeing and I've been kind of mentioning it along the way. But now... <laughs> The lens of Abraham, lens of Christ, that leaves a big gap. That's a lot of time left now in between Abraham and Jesus. And so what exactly is God doing during this long stretch of time between Abraham and Jesus? And, and you know, what, like 98% it seems like of the Old Testament seems to be dealing with this in between time. And Paul's like, it's over here and over here. So, so what's, what's going on with that? What is God doing with the rest of it? Well, not to build it up too much because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to disappoint you terribly next week, um, you'll have to come back to find out. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to understand your word, and we want to understand what you're doing in this world. And, and, and we have to be honest and humble and just say that whether because we, lack of training, lack of discipline on our parts to be good students, many of us just don't. We have read the Old Testament and we have read the stories uh, piecemeal and we know that and we try. We try to get a bigger picture, but we just seem to struggle with this so much. And yet here's Paul laying it out so clearly. So we want to understand because we recognize that this doesn't just affect how we read 
Deuteronomy and Lamentations and Psalms and Ezekiel, it, it affects how we understand what you are doing in this world. And so give us eyes to see, give us hearts to, to accept and understand so that we can see our own stories then playing out within this larger story that you are building. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.